following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Uh, last Friday, we had a, a snow day. And so snow day, kids are all home. Um, I woke up and thought, well, you know what? We'll do something fun for the kids. So I was going to make monkey bread. For the kids, if you know, don't know monkey bread, it's a little pieces of bread with cinnamon and sugar and caramel dumped over it. It's, it's good. Um, but we're going to make monkey bread muffins. So I, I got everything out and the kids got up and, and they're coming around. And I'm like, well, okay, we're going we're gonna to make monkey bread muffins. Well, Hayden said, well, I, I want to help. I'm like, great kid, you can help. So she starts helping me with this monkey bread. Now, the thing with help from kids as some of you know, is that when Hayden agrees to help, when she offers her help, I know that the task of making these monkey bread muffins is going to take twice as long. It's going to take a lot longer. And I also know that at some point in the process, she's going to give up, get bored and walk away and leave me to finish the job. But even so, I love having her help. And I know that even if it takes longer, and even if she gives up and walks away, I'm still going to finish making those muffins. They're still going to have those muffins for breakfast. Why? Because the job at hand doesn't depend on her skill. The job at hand doesn't depend on her determination. The job at hand doesn't require her help. See, when Jesus was born, as we talked about last week, God sets the wheels in motion for his great plan of redemption. And along the way, as we started to see last week, he's going to use faithful men and women to bring about the completion of his plan. But we see and we remember that all along the way, it's not about the faithful men and women he uses in that plan. It's about the fact that it is God's plan. It is his plan. It is his purposes. And it is his might that will bring success to his plan. And the same is true even today for you and me. God has kingdom work to be done today in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family in the places where you find yourselves throughout the day. And he has set his work and plan and he wants to use you. He wants your faithfulness to be at play. But it is his might. It is his authority. And it is his victory that is being played out. Not yours, not mine, not ours. So the question is, how does the sovereign God establish and embolden our faithfulness to him in light of his kingdom purposes and what he is going to accomplish? Well, once again, last week, we talked about our part in the restoration of our hearts. We talked about the fact that it requires us a willful surrender to God's purposes in Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to see how God puts our faithfulness to work, but how he does the heavy lifting for the glory of his kingdom 
The first way we're gonna see this is, is where God starts. And this is verse one through 12, where we see how God draws a line. God draws a line. Matthew chapter two, verses one through 12. This is after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of, Judea, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time they saw the star appear. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, search carefully for the child. And, and when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling on their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. God draws a line. The responses that we see in these 12 verses, the response of, of the wise men and the response of Herod, give us a dichotomy of every single person's response to Jesus Christ in the entire world. If we break this down, we, we, we see that first what comes up is, is these wise men come from the East. Right? Wise men and the, the Greek word here is magoi. Um, in, in fact, your, your Bible may translate this as magi. Right? It, these, are, these are wise men, not kings, okay? Not kings, and there's not three of them. Just for next Christmas, for you to be thinking of, they're not kings and there's not three of them. We, we don't know who they are. We don't know really where they come from, but they're not kings and there's probably not just three of them. They are men who are likely from Persia, from the area of Persia. And these magi were kind of uh, astrologers of sorts. They studied the skies. They studied the stars. They were renowned for their wisdom at reading the skies and understanding what that meant, right? Think of, think of early, uh, early meteorologists, right? They could read the, st the, the stars, the skies, the weather, all this stuff and, and understand what was about to come. In fact, because they were so good at this, some people considered them magicians. You know where we get the word magician? Magi, right? So these people were, were renowned that people looked at them and they're like, man, you guys, you guys know some stuff. Like this is amazing. But these guys followed a star from the East. Again, likely Persia, they followed this, this star from the east. And the star was probably not an actual star in the sky. This is probably more of a divine light. If you remember the story of Exodus, when the Israelites are brought out of Exodus, what do they follow? They follow a, a pillar of a cloud, and then they follow a pillar of fire. It's a divine light put in place. This is what these guys are probably following. God puts this light and it moves and it leads them and it guides them. 
but they followed this star until they come to Jerusalem. They say, Hey, we've come to find the one who was born King of the Jews. Okay. This, this phrase King of the Jews, this is really important to this story because this phrase King of the Jews is what sets Herod off. Herod was a ruler of, of Judea who was put in place, who was appointed by the Roman government. Roman government said, hey, you, you go there, you rule over these people, you take care of them, make sure nothing goes wrong. And Herod considered himself to be the king of the Jews. Right? He, was put in, he was put in control. He was given authority by Rome. He's the one in charge. He considered himself the king of the Jews. And the fact that these wise men come and go, hey, who was born the king of the Jews? This enrages Herod. If you know Herod's backstory, you know this is an evil dude. Like this guy had his wife and his sons put to death because he was afraid they might try to take his, his power. They might try to take his authority. All right, so now he goes, okay, somebody's coming for me. Somebody's gunning for my spot, my throne, my crown. And he is angry. And so he calls these wise men. And he says, hey guys, um, I know you guys are going and you guys, you're magi, you're magicians. You're following the star. You're, you're probably going to find this one who was born king of the Jews. Hey, go find him. Do it. Great. Then come back and tell me because I want to go worship him too. All right, he's lying through his teeth. He gives this deceptive proposition. He's claiming to want to worship, but he's desiring destruction. So the wise men go. And God once again brings out this star, this divine light to lead the wise men to the feet of Jesus where they fall down and they worship him. They praise him, they worship him, and they give him these gifts. And after however long they've spent at the feet of Jesus and his mother worshiping the one born, the king of the Jews, they go home a different route. God says, no, no, don't go the same way you came. Go this other way. And they go. They evade Herod and they make their way back home. Okay, so think about this story real quick. Herod and the wise men, the magi. What's the difference between Herod and the wise men? It's their response to Jesus. The single most significant difference between Herod and the wise men is their response to Jesus. Herod rejects Jesus seeks to destroy him, to rebel. The wise men come and worship. If you are a football fan, today's an important day, right? You've got conference championships in the NFL. Two games, the winner of each of these games goes on to the Super Bowl. Probably at least one of, if not the single greatest, largest, most watched one day sporting event in the world. Now, if you watch either of these games today, you're going to notice something. There's going to be different players on the field playing against each other. They're going to all have their own, you know, there's going to be two teams, two jerseys, two sets of pants, two different helmets. You know what you're not going to see on the field? Somebody playing for both teams. 
there's no all-time quarterback, all-time wide receiver who just gets to play whoever's on offense. Well, we get to, we get to be on this team now. Oh, well, we'll be on this team now. No, no, no. Every player on that field is on one team or the other. Never both. This is the way our lives go. This is the way of the life of every single person on the face of the earth. We will either reject Jesus like Herod, or we will worship him like the wise men. We have no middle ground. We have no third option. There's no other choice. You can't wait and see what's going to happen, and then I'll be okay, and then I'll join the winning side. It is one or the other. Later in Matthew, in chapter 25, verse 31 through 33, Jesus lays this out very clearly. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory, this is Jesus saying, when I come back and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before them and he will separate them one from another. Just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Listen, do you hear what Jesus says he does? Jesus says, I am the line of distinction. You are a sheep or you are a goat. <laughs> How's that for your Sunday morning? You're a sheep or you're a goat. Which one do you want to be? I don't really want to be a sheep. It's a whole other conversation. Jesus says, I am the line of distinction. And how you respond to me says you are a sheep or you are a goat. There is no middle ground. Why? Why is that the case? It's because of who Jesus is. Jesus is the son of the almighty God who knows our faults, knows our failures. Like we said earlier, if he was a fair God, he would just condemn us to hell and leave us there. But because of his great love, forgiveness, mercy, grace, goodness, kindness, Instead of leaving us where we deserve, Jesus left the throne of heaven to be born into this world, to take on human flesh, to be born of his mother, Mary, so that he could live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death. So he could rise victoriously to deliver us completely in a way that only Jesus, the perfect sacrificial lamb, the son of God with no sin could do. And Jesus says, you can respond to me in one of two ways. You can reject me and still try to do enough on your own. Be good enough, be smart enough. And that's fine, but you're a goat. He says, or you submit, you surrender and you worship me. And you are a sheep. Jesus is the line of distinction. Where do we fall? I know we're all sheep, right? We all worship Jesus, right? That's why we're here. We all worship Jesus. Do, do we? Do we always? Do we really? Because worshiping Jesus means more than going to church. It means more than knowing some answers from your Bible. 
To worship Jesus means we give sacrificially of our finances because we recognize that our money is not ours, it is his. To worship Jesus means that we are constantly seeking to edify and build up others. That means when we're in conflict, we give another person the benefit of the doubt. We see the best in their intentions. We bring encouragement to others. Why? Because Jesus has loved us so deeply in those same ways. To worship Jesus means we set aside those those pet sins that we hold on to. Like, this is not a big deal. This is just a small thing. It's okay. Culture says this is fine. So I'm just going to keep doing this because it's easier Worshiping Jesus says we set those aside because we desire Jesus' holiness over our comfort. Right, to truly worship Jesus is a matter of choosing to worship him with every thought, every word, and every opportunity in our lives. Setting ourselves aside and worshiping him. And let me just say, this is one of the reasons I love this church. This is one of the reasons I'm so grateful that God has allowed me to be a part of your lives and what God does in and through you. Because in this church, I have seen firsthand so many times, time after time after time, where we've been through ministry changes, we've been through building renovations, we've been through service adaptations, and it's all been done without fights over our preferences. We all have our own preference, right? We all have things we think, this is, this is the way I would like things to be. But in this church, I have seen you guys be phenomenal at choosing to worship Jesus over worshiping this church building or worshiping your preferences or anything like that. And it is a blessing in my life to see that in you and see that through you. And so the charge for us is to keep that up. Keep that up. When we find those times where our preferences aren't matched, where things aren't exactly the way we want them to be, what are we going to do? Are we going to worship Jesus? Are we going to celebrate Jesus? Are we going to seek to proclaim the gospel? Are we going to say, no, 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 I want things this way and you guys better get on board. Man, keep being who you have been for so long as a church. Because the Magi, the wise men, they chose to leave the comfort of their own home, to travel 900 miles on foot to worship Jesus. And at that point, God draws that line. And he says, who are we going to be like? Are we going to be Herod, protecting our own kingdom, fighting for our kingdom? Or are we going to be the wise men who choose to leave everything, lay our treasures at the feet of Jesus and worship him? God draws a line of distinction between surrender and worship and rebellion and rejection. For those who surrender, this passage goes on. And in verse 13 and 18, it says that when we surrender, then God provides sanctuary. Verses 13 through 18, God provides sanctuary. Starting in verse 13, after they were gone, they as the the wise men, After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to to Egypt. 
He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken to the Lord, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and younger, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. God provides sanctuary. And after the wise men head home, God intervenes again and he warns Joseph, hey, Herod's coming to get you, okay? Rise, take Jesus and his mother and go to Egypt. And Joseph is, as we saw last week, Joseph displays his faithfulness and he goes presumably immediately. This phrase during the night uh, seems to imply that he went right away. He didn't wait around to see, hey, is God telling me the truth? No, he got up and he went. And Herod, being outsmarted by the wise men, angrily orders the massacre of children around Bethlehem. This fulfills what was written in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, uh, it's talking about uh, the, the deportation from Israel. How the, the, the people of Judah had been conquered and were now taken away in exile. Rachel symbolizes all of the people of, of Israel weeping over these children who were being carried out Mothers knowing they would never see their children again. But here's the thing. Even in this, even in the massacre of these children around Bethlehem, even this callback to Jeremiah and the deportation of all of these children, the broken hearts of their mothers, God meets the weeping with hope. If you follow what happens in, in Jeremiah 31, right, verse 15 says, talks about Rachel weeping over her children. If you go on to verse 16 and 17, it says, this is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for the reward for your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration. And your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration and your children will return to their own territory. Right, Every step of the way, even in the trial, the struggle, the heartbreak, the heartache, God says, no, 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 know that there is hope. God protects his son, Jesus, by sending him to Egypt. And by extension, he is protecting all of us. Because by protecting Jesus in that moment, he's protecting us because now the Messiah lives so that he could die at the appropriate time so that he could deliver us from our sin and our depravity. God intervenes to provide sanctuary for Jesus. And God does the same thing for you and me. Our world is far from perfect. Amen? 
Amen. Our world is far from perfect. And here's the thing. Every single one of us faces the temptation in that realization. Every single one of us faces the temptation to run to things of this world to find even a moment of respite from the brokenness of the world around us. Maybe we run to alcohol. Maybe we run to food. Maybe we run to retail therapy. Maybe we run to career success. Maybe we run to burying ourselves in a digital version of life. Maybe we run to complaining, to arguing, to judgment. Maybe we run to tearing other people down because this world makes us feel bad. We are all tempted to run to things in this world to try to find that sanctuary. But we know that these broken sanctuaries never provide what we need. Every one of these things that we run to going, maybe this will make me feel better in the moment. Maybe this will take care of the problem that I'm having. All of these things are merely idols. They're idols we've run to in hopes that they will relieve our pain. And that hope is never fulfilled. It's by God's grace obtained through faith in Jesus Christ that even in the storms and tragedies of this world, we can be preserved in the joyous presence of our God and King. Psalm 34 verse 19 says, one who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them. Anybody know the last word? All. The Lord rescues him from them all. Listen, we know this world is broken. We know it brings heartache and struggle and we can try to take care of that in a million different ways and they will all fail us. Or we can run to the sanctuary of our God and know that he will deliver us. What's that look like? And to rest in the sanctuary of God, we must rest in God's gift of peace and protection in Jesus Christ. That might mean that there are times where we just have to step back, slow down, take a breath and focus not on our struggle, but on God's goodness, even in the struggle. It may mean that we have to learn to make our first response to trials, not crying out of how unfair God is, but crying out in prayer to the one who can deliver. Maybe it means that we have to learn to celebrate what God has done instead of complaining about what he hasn't. Oh, I don't like that one. That one hurts me. But if we want protection, we want sanctuary, even in the midst of this broken world, we can't find it by running to a broken world. We find it by running to our God. So where do we look for our rest, our protection, our sanctuary? God draws the line and he provides sanctuary for his children. And in doing so, we see finally how God completes his plans. God completes his plans. Verses 19 through 23, 
goes on and says, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and he entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then what Then he went and settled in the town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. God completes his plans. Herod dies. God says to Joseph, get up, take the child and his mother and go home. If you you study the language, it's, it's almost the exact same words used when he says, get up, take the child and his mother, go to Egypt. Now he says, get up, take the child and his mother, go to Israel, go home. And Joseph obeys, but he's scared. He obeys, but he's afraid of Herod's son. He says, God, I know you've taken care of me. I know you've done all this stuff, but I I don't want to do what you're calling me to do. I don't want to go where you're telling me to go. God uses this. And God leads him to Nazareth. Nazareth in that day was a small, out of the way, kind of back, backwoods town. Uh, scholars believe there's maybe 500 people here. The residents of Nazareth were, were really looked down in that time. In fact, that's why when you read the Gospel of John in, in John 1, verse 46, when uh, Nathaniel hears that, that Jesus of Nazareth This is the Messiah. And his question is, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's like that hillbilly hick town. You're telling me the Messiah is there? Really? But this is where God sends Joseph so that Jesus would be known as a Nazarene. And what we see here is that even though even though Joseph fails. And we've seen Joseph be faithful and do everything God's told him to do. But when God says, go to Israel, he's like, ah, I'm afraid. I don't want to do that. Even in that, God is going to complete his plan. He's going to use that for the glory and the honor of his kingdom to fulfill scripture. Even Joseph's Questions and doubt cannot thwart the will of God. When we talk about God being sovereign and the fact that God alone will complete his plans, that if you want to fight against God, go for it, but God's still going to complete what he wants to do. It's really easy for us to then hear that and go, okay, hold on. So you're saying um, that nothing I do matters, right? If God's going to do what he's going to do and he calls me to help, he says, Jonathan, I want to use you for this. And I say, that's all right, God, I'm good but he's going to do it anyway, then, then it doesn't matter what I do. Right? There, there becomes this almost fatalistic feeling to that. But that's a poor understanding of what God is doing. Because the certainty of God's victory is not about the fact that now we don't actually have to do anything because God's going to take care of it anyway. The certainty of God's victory reminds us that whether we succeed or fail by our standards, the thing that matters 
is that we serve him faithfully. That we give ourselves fully and completely to God's call. I'm gonna let you behind the, the curtain of pastoral ministry for a second, okay? When I preach on Sunday morning, every Sunday afternoon, I feel terrible. I think back about what I preached on Sunday morning and it's never what, I, what I'd hoped it would be. It's never as clear as I wanted it to be. It's never as precise or effective as, as I had hoped it would be. And Satan keys in on that and he wants to beat me up. And sometimes he does a really good job of it. You know how I overcome that? I have to remind myself every Sunday afternoon that I have sought to be as faithful as possible to God's word to take as much care for the ministry of preaching his word as I possibly can. And I have to be satisfied in that. Whether you like my preaching or not, whether you agree with my preaching or not, whether you're moved by my preaching or completely apathetic to it, doesn't matter. That's not the standard of my success or failure. I am successful when I am faithful, period. In Hosea chapter six, verse six, God reminds the people, he says, for I desire faithful love and not sacrifices, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Right? He's not saying there, you shouldn't offer sacrifices or you shouldn't work hard to be better, to do your best. No, he's saying, but it's about your heart. God tells me I could be the greatest preacher to ever walk the face of the earth. And if my heart is not completely devoted to him, I am worthless. My work means nothing. I'm successful when I'm faithful. And here's the thing. The same is true for you. The same is true for God's calling in your life today. You are not ultimately accountable to success in the eyes of, of me, of Pastor Ron, of the elders, of this church, of your spouse, of your family, of your community, or anyone else. We all have accountabilities, yes, don't get me wrong and be like, I don't care about anybody else ever because Jonathan said, no, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is your ultimate accountability is not to any other person. I don't care how close they are to you, how important they are to you, that does not matter. Your ultimate accountability is not to that person. Your ultimate accountability is to the Lord because he is the one who has called you according to his will. And God will complete his plans but he has called us to be faithful to him in those plans so that we get the blessing and the joy of seeing him work in ways that we otherwise wouldn't. So when it comes to whatever God's called you to, and listen, when we talk about calling, when we talk about God's calling in your life, we're not talking about some mystical, magical thing that I don't know if I'll ever figure this out. No, when we're talking about calling, we're talking about who God has made you to be and the opportunities he has put in front of you to make his love, his grace, and his mercy known to other people. It's really that simple. And he does that to eat, through each one of us in different ways, by different means, in different situations. But our calling is to make Christ known. And God's call for us is to be faithful in the task. Do you feel unprepared for that? 
Do you feel unworthy of that? Do you feel intimidated by something you may think you are called to? Doesn't matter. God's called you to work, go to work. God has called you to a purpose, go after it. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and sound judgment. Why do we have that? Because our success and failure doesn't depend upon us or anyone around us. It depends upon the God who has already won the victory. That means whatever he calls you to is secured in its victory. Maybe not the way you think it's going to be. Maybe not the way we hope it's going to be. But if we are faithful, God's victory is secure. Listen, are there areas in our lives where our faithfulness has been hindered by our, our fears, our doubts, our questions, our unwillingness to be uncomfortable? And if so, who do we think is in control? For the heart that desires to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection, there is no option to give the Lord less than our entire lives. We are to seek to live in complete and utter faithfulness in how we conduct ourselves in this life. And that being said, we must never succumb to the temptation to believe that our salvation, our redemption, or our restoration relies on our abilities, even our ability to be faithful. Instead, we remember that we are able to be faithful because when we were unable, God sent his son to redeem us, to save us, and to restore us according to his divine will. See, it's not about us. It's about him. It's not about us. It's about him. It's not about me. It's about him. It's not about you. It's about him. God draws the line of distinction between those who worship him and those who worship false saviors. He provides sanctuary both in this life and for the eternity to come to those who choose to rest in his goodness. And he alone is responsible and able to complete his purposes for his kingdom. Church family, may we continue to serve the Lord with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength, with every desire, every thought, every word, and every deed. And let us do so with confidence, peace, and boldness, knowing that God is in control. And with this assurance, may we share the hope and the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father in every moment of our lives. In short, may we be the church. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the gift that we've been given to be called your children, to be a part of your family to receive the adoption as sons and daughters of the most high God through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we repent of the ways that we have chosen to serve ourselves. 
We repent of the idols we've run to in search of, of the sanctuary that only you can provide. We repent of the ways we have relied on our abilities. Lord, we turn back to you. And we run to you with gratitude in our hearts that you have chosen to use us for the purposes of your kingdom. We pray that you would give us the eyes to see the glory of your name. That you would give us the strength to run the race before us. That the name of Jesus Christ might be glorified. We pray for the wisdom to remind ourselves day after day and moment after moment that it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone in who we find our hope and our salvation, our purpose, our joy, and every good thing you have in store for our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. And in your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.